G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you to taking the time and down, down to download and listen to this uh, RVC Clinical Podcast. And we don't ask for anything in return. Well, maybe that's uh, maybe that's a lie. If you could actually go to the Apple Podcast or iTunes Store and leave us a review. A five-star review would be great. I'm sure there are other other star reviews possible, but five stars would uh, would really be beneficial to us to work on metrics that neither Brian or myself understand. But uh, one day we we will with a with the fullness of time. But basically, that allows us to work on some metrics to allow this information to at least be more accessible to the people that want to want to listen to it. So that would be great if you could just spend a couple of minutes of your day to go to to go to the Apple uh, Apple Podcast Store and uh, and leave us a review. So today we're going to talk to uh, Professor Hattie Simon. Hello, hello Hattie. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Dom. And uh, and so so we thought about to talk about the uh, the idea about the interplay between uh, between renal disease and and hypothyroidism. Um, so uh, so th- thank you for, for for joining us today, Hattie. So I suppose uh, where, where would be a good place to start between uh, uh, between hypothyroidism and renal disease? Is there a, a subset of patients that we know that have chronic renal failure that have hypothyroidism or a subset of patients that we know have hypothyroidism might have undiagnosed renal disease? Yeah, there's huge interplay between these two conditions because obviously they're both conditions of the older cat. And I would say that a large number of the consult calls that we get from referring vets and questions that are addressed to us are about this interplay between the two. And it works in both directions. So we'll have questions about cats that have developed azotemia following treatment for hypothyroidism. But we'll also, and something that gets talked about perhaps less, is the situation where a cat clinically perhaps is thought to be hypothyroid. It's showing signs suggested of that. The patient's got pre-existing azotemia or known to have renal disease, and yet hypothyroidism isn't, isn't, isn't diagnosed, or at least the total T4 concentrations are not elevated the first time the test is run and then the question arises okay is this cat with a quote-unquote normal t4 is this cat actually hypothyroid so do you have a, a cutoff in mind with with hyperthyroidism because i know like in, in general like when the, the numbers are, are low or or uh, there's a wonderful phrase in the infilman and nelson about uh, the the likelihood ratio with with dogs with hypothyroidism about like it's possible it might be possible it's highly suggestive it's very suggestive it's more suggestive and, and so there's this sort of gray a great expanse of, of of doubt of whether whether an animal is is hypothyroid or not but is, is that the same with with hyperthyroidism as well is there a gray area there's certainly a gray zone i mean what we know is in general if you get back a total t4 measurement and it's out of your laboratory reference range the diagnosis of hypothyroidism is pretty secure um, and if you take that, as we always should, in combination with appropriate history and physical exam findings, then essentially one measurement of total T4 that's elevated, you can be pretty comfortable that that cat has hypothyroidism. But if you take a whole load of cats that are 
definitely use thyroid so let's take sort of young cats then actually their t4 levels if you if you calculated a reference range for them it's true that most of them would probably have t4s less than 35 to 40 it's going to depend a little bit on the assay that you're using so actually there is a big shoulder or grey zone between 35 or 40 and the upper end of the reference range for which if you've got an older cat certainly there's a very very high likelihood that that cat is hypothyroid or is in the process of developing hypothyroidism now it might not necessarily be the cause of the clinical signs that the patient presents with because if the if the patient's emaciated and or has has clinical signs that aren't consistent with hypothyroidism you know that to go chasing that as a diagnosis may be may may be inappropriate but in a patient with compatible clinical signs and certainly in an older relatively poorly conditioned cat then there's a very high likelihood if the patient's in the upper third of the reference range that that it's hypothyroid and one of the things that we know is that this is particularly likely to be the case in patients with pre-existing renal disease so in our first opinion clinics that we run or the charity clinics that we run in London we see cats that have got a diagnosis of chronic kidney disease and we see them sequentially and longitudinally and we monitor them and one of the things that we see is patients that um, are starting to lose weight not precipitously but they're just gradually losing weight and their creatinines are actually dropping and that's and sometimes their liver enzyme ele- are slightly elevated and that's a big flag to us that those patients are developing hypothyroidism and we'll probably pick it up in that situation before the owner has really perceived a clinical problem because as far as they're concerned the cat's bright and happy is eating relatively well and perhaps it hasn't yet progressed to the degree that they would they would actually notice that there's a problem. So is this only from your your basically your studies looking at these sort of population of cats that you identified this as in this is a, a progression or a pattern that you that you see rather than um, so so in other words you, you see you follow them through to their to their end result rather than actually more of a more of a suspicion? Um I think we see it everywhere. We see it in patients that are referred to the QMH as as well. Um, Occasionally we'll have cats come in for technician scans and things like that to nail the diagnosis where the biochemical changes are equivocal. Um, So in terms of our referral first opinion setting, I think that just um, makes it more more obvious and more extreme. And actually... Of the cats with pre-existing kidney disease, when we when we look at total T4, it's actually only out of the reference range half of the time when we first suspect the diagnosis, even though we've got data that shows that when we follow those cats up longitudinally, eventually we can prove the diagnosis. 
So it's it's just a, an even more extreme variation, but it definitely happens in general practice, and it we see it in the referral clinic as well. So does that change how you approach like starting treatment of of, uh, of these individuals? So if you see that slight change in elevation of liver enzymes as well, if you're in the in the top third of that total uh, T4, do you, do you, uh, what makes you think you should start treating this patient or not? Um, well, I guess I try to only stop treatment in a patient where we have secured a diagnosis. So I would be very suspicious in that setting, but I would, I would try and do something to confirm the diagnosis if I can. And certainly in the patients where I suspect the diagnosis, but the owner hasn't yet noticed a problem, it's not a tearing emergency and it's perfectly reasonable to to let the patient go home and to give it a couple of months and to measure the T4 again and to see if it's increasing sequentially. Um, but there are situations in which the patient is losing weight or there are other things going on with the patient that are of concern that makes us want to um, obtain a diagnosis faster than we would just by continually monitoring the T4. And in that situation, we have lots of lots of options. What we choose to do is, is quite variable depending on the sort of clinical situation in which we see the, see the patient. So as I mentioned in the referral hospital, we might do a technetium scan. Technetium is a radioisotope that the body deals with as though it was iodine. It's not iodine, but the body acts as though it were, and it takes it up into thyroid cells. And if there's a lot of uptake into the thyroid, um, more than is taken up into the salivary gland, then that supports the diagnosis of hypothyroidism. And it's relatively straightforward for us to do because we're in a referral hospital and we have the equipment, but that's not something that's widely available in general practice. There are other blood tests that can be done. Classically, the thing that has been used is instead of just measuring total T4, which is the T4 that's free in circulation and the T4 that's bound to proteins, but instead to measure free T4. Now, whilst I said that for total T4, the problem is that that you can you can get some cats with total T4 measurements that are within the reference range that actually have hypothyroidism. Free T4, the problem is the other way around, in that you will have some cats that are not hypothyroid that have elevated free T4 measurements. What we used to say, and free T4 used to be perhaps a little bit more in vogue than it is now, so in the in the work that was done with free T4 measurements, if you had the combination of a total T4 that was in the upper third of the reference range, so it was getting up there, even if it wasn't outside of the reference range, that in combination with an elevated free T4 seemed to be a pretty secure diagnosis of hypothyroidism. The problem is that the assays have changed and 
nobody's quite sure if the currently available free T4 assays actually perform as well as the ones that the studies were done on, and there is some suggestion that they may not. Another option is to look at TSH measurement, um, and actually if, if it was you or I being diagnosed with hypothyroidism, the first thing that they would look at is your TSH measurement, and they'd looked to see that your TSH levels were suppressed, and if your TSH is low, that's a suggestion that the, your thyroid gland is producing too much thyroid hormone. Um, in cats, there is no assay that's available specifically for use in the cats. But what we have done is a little bit of work looking at TSH measurements using an assay that was developed for the dog. And the problem with this is that some cats, particularly if you get young regular cats, um, they some some of those cats will also have very low TSH measurements. But if you have a cat in which you suspect it's hypothyroid, it's got a T4 that is in the upper part of the reference range and the TSH level is undetectable, then that also seems to be a pretty secure diagnosis of hypothyroidism. I suppose you'd always want to, the, to do these tests in animals that you suspect have the disease or a high likelihood of, of having this disease rather than a a three-year-old domestic short hair that's uh, losing weight, for example. Absolutely. And, I mean, always it comes back to the pre-test probability. Is it likely that this patient has the disease that I'm testing for? Um, so you have to think that it's compatible. And one of the, the tests that is really cheap and really available and underplayed is to palpate for a goiter which I think a lot of people are underconfident about doing. But actually, in most of the studies where it's been reported, sort of more than 90% of cats with hypothyroidism will have a palpable goiter. So that's definitely worth doing as well. And is it the percentage, I know the, the, what was in, in books, I don't think I've necessarily ever come across, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure you have, is whether the thyroid is that big that it goes into the thoracic inlet or you can't feel it because it's, it, because it's in there. Is that, is that, was that the, the 10% that you, you can't feel? Is that what they're suggesting happens? Um, certainly there are some cats where you can't feel a goiter and, and cats that we do a technetium scan on or that end up having surgical thyroidectomy where the tissue is intrathoracic. But actually, having palpated a lot of cats' necks, I actually think that the, the thyroid glands that are easiest to feel, strangely, are not always the largest ones. The perfect thyroid or the easy one to pick up is the thyroid that's about the size of a pea and that makes a very strong sort of blip under your fingers. Somehow the really quite large thyroid thyroids morph into the rest of the neck and and they can be harder to get and then when you find them you're like, how did I miss that? It's the size of an egg. Um, so... Yeah, there's definitely a bell curve with the very small ones being difficult to palpate, but also some of the some of the really quite considerable size ones. So and sometimes it's because they're right down in the thoracic inlet. 
So it's more that if you're looking for a grain of rice or a pea, and actually it's a, it's a more of an egg, then uh, then that's more of the more of the issue rather than actually being somewhere that it shouldn't. It's uh, looking for a pen that's right in front of you, sort of thing. Yeah, I think both things are true. <laughs> okay. So, so if you're if you're happy with your uh, um, uh, your diagnosis of, of hypothyroidism, is there is there a a uh, preferred sort of treatment option for say these these patients that have um, your concern about their their renal function as as well? Oh, uh, that's a multi-layered question in terms of in terms of how how to make appropriate decisions for for patients um i mean i think radioactive iodine is a fantastic treatment for hypothyroidism and you know most vets and nurses i think that's the treatment that they would give to their own cats um given the choice but there are those who would say that if the patient has pre-existing renal disease you might not want to do to give a treatment that is um, irreversible, like radioactive iodine or, or, or surgical thyroidectomy. But, that, but that's problematic because that's sort of almost suggesting that if, if we've got a patient with pre-existing renal disease, then we might want to treat it medically or with diet so that we could under-treat the hypothyroidism, which I don't think is generally a good idea. And here we're talking about patients with mild renal dysfunction. There are there are patients with really advanced renal disease that are also hypothyroid, in which treatment is going to destabilise their condition and they're likely to do poorly however we treat them. But in in general, I think it's a bad idea to under-treat hypothyroidism with the idea that by doing that we won't make the renal numbers move out of the reference range because actually that's not achieving anything. Um, we We should treat the hypothyroidism but we should try not to over treat the hypothyroidism and make the cats hypothyroid and one of the things that we know is that actually a lot of cats following thyroidectomy or following radioactive iodine are hypothyroid, maybe temporarily, maybe permanently, um, and being hypothyroid and azotemic seems seems to be detrimental to the cat. Interestingly, what we found is that if the cats are not... Um, uh, if the cats are not hypothyroid, actually if the cat is azotemic or non-azotemic after treatment, doesn't influence their survival. The cats that are azotemic after, after treatment live just as long as the ones that aren't. That that is uh, that is pretty interesting. So even so, does the uh, length of time that the patients are hypothyroid does that influence their their survival as well? Uh, that's a good question. We don't we don't know the answer to that. Um, and and part of the problem is this this observation that the cats with the double whammy of hypothyroidism and azotemia do worse 
came from a paper that we published and that was looking at cats that were in the main it was cats that were medically treated some of them were medically treated and then had surgery but you could argue that it was a relatively small study i mean it was reasonably sized for a veterinary study but it was it was not in, enormous um we did make this observation and the sort of almost problem is that we now feel obliged knowing this to treat any cats that become hypothyroid or at least if they're medically managed to back off on the dose of medication to to try and reduce uh, reduce the the likelihood that the cat is hypothyroid um so that makes it difficult to substantiate that finding by doing other studies because of what we feel clinically obliged to do fair enough fair enough that's that uh, that that makes sense um and so, so when you uh, whatever treatment you're uh, well instigating is there is there a preferred way of of monitoring these patients so whether they're medical or, or have radioactive iodine you want to monitor them in, in a in a in a certain way as in to look at their t4 blood pressure creatinine um so the monitoring you do is probably going to depend a little bit on the modality that you use to treat them. Um, in in general, it's it's going to be total T4 that you use to monitor the the effectiveness of your treatment of the hypothyroidism. Although it, that does bring up an interesting question because if the T4 wasn't elevated to start off with then what's your target for treatment but in general I would be looking for a T4 on treatment to be in the lower half of the reference range ideally not below the reference range but um, but perhaps between 15 and 30 would be ideal now something that we have also seen is as a consequence of the study that we did showing that cats that were hypothyroid and acetemic did a little bit worse, is that people are increasingly getting a low T4 value and thinking that they need to back off on the medication. And, I mean, I understand why they're doing that, but sometimes that can lead to problems where you're yo-yoing up and down on the basis of the numbers... And fundamentally, it comes back to the patient. So if the patient is doing clinically well and isn't azotemic, but's got a T4 that's a bit below the laboratory reference range, I probably wouldn't rock the boat. And I would just say, this is a patient that's clinically doing well. Let's see how it's going. If it's azotemic or if, it, if I'm worried about it for some other reason, then, then I might do something about it. But... I think I think sometimes now we actually have gone from completely ignoring the fact that cats were hypothyroid, we've gone a little bit too far the other way, and what happens is the owners get upset because, you know, the the dose is being adjusted every time they come in and they're they're taking the cat into the vets every 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 couple of weeks for dose adjustments to be to be made, and actually. The patient would have been was doing fine on its initial initial dose. In, in your experience, has, has there, do you need to muck around much with the with the dose and with the dosing of of uh, um, medication? Though, um, 
I mean, under-treatment of hypothyroidism remains a problem. Um, so we, you definitely need to, to monitor T4 to make sure that the hypothyroidism is controlled. Um, but as with as we were saying with regard to diagnosis, you've got to put you've got to put that in the context of how the patient's doing clinically. Um, the the other thing about monitoring treatment that's interesting is that obviously there's going to be a change in renal parameters when you treat them. Um, and this is because we know hypothyroidism increases GFR. So creatinine goes down when the cat is hypothyroid and it when you treat it the creatinine will go back up um, and that happens really in almost all of the cats that you treat it's just some of it some of the cats will go outside of the reference range and some of them will have changes that are within the laboratory reference range and in general the more hypothyroid the cat is the bigger those changes will be. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that it seems to take a while for the creatinine numbers to stabilise. So even though we know the changes in GFR will happen quite quickly with establishment of euthyroidism, the creatinine tends to take about three months to stabilise. So Certainly if you've got a patient where the owners haven't got a lot of money, if the patient's doing well clinically, perhaps you don't, you don't want to check the creatinine too quickly after instigating treatment because, because the numbers may not have equilibrated by then, but leave it a couple of months before you measure it. So just give a, 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 bit, of, a bit of time. Yeah. Is there any is there any time of day that, or does it matter at all when you measure T four in in cats, or in relation to dosing if you're if you're giving them medication? Yeah, no, there's other, it doesn't matter when you when you um, take the samples, um, and that's something that's interesting. It's it's true of both methimazole, um, which is in filimazole and now various generic equivalents or, or in the carbomazole sustained release um vidalta is its trade name um because because actually although those drugs have a relatively short half-life in circulation they get taken up and stored with it concentrated within the thyroid gland and they stay in the thyroid tissue for much longer than they stay in the blood so it's been shown that even with methimazole, which only has a half-life of a couple of hours, 24 hours after the tablet was given, the T4 hasn't hasn't changed. And there's no sort of diurnal rhythms or rhythms with or elevations in in thyroid for for any other any other sort of reason. No, that doesn't seem to be an issue. So any time of day, and you know, so long as the cat has been getting its medication, it should be fine. It's just systemically well as well in case it's got another disease process going on. Yeah. Um, uh, very, very, very good. And uh, with, with this, I suppose, are there, are there any... Um, uh, so looking at things like uh, SDMA, would that, would that necessarily give a, give a, a benefit or, or not in your monitoring of uh, the effects of 
treating hypothyroidism? Interesting question. So I think I think there's a lot that we yet have to discover about SDMA. Um, and obviously it's SDMA is an alternative marker of GFR and anything that tells us more about the kidney is is going to be a good thing in my book because the kidney is an organ I love. Um, but but I don't I don't think we really know what the situation is with regard to SDMA and hypothyroidism. One of the things that 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 has been shown with SDMA is that in comparison to creatinine, so if you look at a a graph basically plotting data from thousands of cats of um, the concentration of creatinine versus the concentration of T4, what you see is the higher the T4, the creatinine tends to drop. And although one reason for this might be, or a small part, of this may be that those cats that are very hypothyroid have low muscle mass and that makes their creatinine levels go down. Probably a much bigger component is the effect that we know that hypothyroidism has on GFR. So if the cat's ragingly hypothyroid, GFR is going to be increased and creatinine is going to go down. Now what's interesting is that if you look at a comparable graph for SDMA against T4, SDMA, the the relationship is pretty much a flat line. So there's no drop in SDMA with increasing T4. But my question is, why not? Because we know GFR is increased in those hypothyroid cats. So if SDMA is truly acting purely as a marker of GFR, you would expect it to be going down. So we know there are issues with creatinine measurements in hypothyroidism because we know that it goes down because GFR goes up. And there's probably a component of loss of muscle mass as well, but we don't know how big that component is. Interestingly, there's a little bit of work that's been done on hypothyroid dogs that suggests that actually the rate at which creatinine is generated may also be altered. So we have, we have a variety of things that are influencing that relationship. But I suspect... There are also things that are going to influence the relationship between SDMA and T4, because otherwise, as I see it, um, SDMA should go down in hypothyroidism because we know that GFR is increased. But it doesn't seem to be from our results. No, although, to be fair, we don't yet have data from cats in which GFR has been measured so we can compare creatinine to SDMA but what we actually need is some some gold standard measurements where GFR has been evaluated and I suspect we will find errors but errors in 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 both parameters but in opposite directions. So, so at the moment looking at 
creatinine would be still your your preferred thing to to, to look at with regard to the, the the renal function in these cats. Well, I think creatinine is what we're familiar with. I'm not saying that it's better, but we at least know what it's going to do in certain situations. And in time, that'll probably be true of SDMA too. And and looking at what one does relative to the other will be will be interesting um, but we're still building up clinical experience with using SDMA So what do you do Hattie if you have a, a cat that is uh, um, you've diagnosed with, with hypothyroidism that doesn't seem to have any, any renal disease as far as you're aware and then you treat it and you notice that creatinine has increased Like, what, what, what would you what is your rationale with approach to the, these cases? Um, so if the cat's become azotemic on treatment of its hypothyroidism, first and foremost, I'm going to be guided about how the, clinic, how the patient's doing clinically. Certainly we see lots of cats that the owners bring them back for a recheck. The owner is really happy with how they're doing. They're gaining weight. They feel like they're, they're acting well. They've got their old cat back they're pleased with how they're doing and we do the blood work and we go oh you know what it's a little bit azotemic so those those patients provided that they're not hypothyroid i do i do nothing with except for treat them like a regular ckd patient which means put them on a renal diet um and continue to monitor them but we we know that as a group, those cats will do do very well and will live for a long time. Half of those cats will live long enough to die of something other than their renal disease. Um, if, if the patient's not doing so well, I mean, I guess one of the problems becomes how do we decide if that cat is hypothyroid? Are we, are we overdoing it? either in terms of our medication or following surgery or following radioactive iodine, have we destroyed the, the thyroid gland? So classically, to, to diagnose hypothyroidism, we would say, OK, well, what we should do is show that the T4 is low and the TSH is high. And certainly... Certainly that is something that we see in our patients. If the T4 is low, the TSH is high. But, but that could be like following radioactive iodine treatment or following, following thyroidectomy, that could be a temporary state of affairs. So the TSH could be elevated for a period of time and then eventually the, the remaining thyrocytes will... Well, we don't really know if they're hypertrophying or if they're multiplying, or uh, but the T4 will gradually come up and return, return to the reference range. So then it's a question of, well, how long should we give it? How long, how long should we allow this situation to continue with a low T4 and a high TSH before we say, you know, I don't think it is going to recover and we need to supplement with thyroid hormone. Is, is there a, a length of time in that? 
Well, it's going to be it's going to be different depending on how they've been treated. I think probably if the or what we work with in the clinic is the idea that if the T4 has been low and the TSH is high and it's six months following radioactive iodine treatment, then probably the the cat is hypothyroid and we work on the assumption that that's permanent. In part by analogy for what happens in humans, and almost all humans who are given radioactive iodine become hypothyroid following treatment if they're followed for long enough. That's partly because they have different underlying diseases. Um, so if if the cat is hypothyroid six months after treatment, I normally give the owner the option at least of supplementing with thyroid hormones. If, if the cat is azotemic, I will steer them strongly towards supplementing. If the cat is non-azotemic and the owner's really happy with how they're doing, then I'm then I put it to the owner and I give them that choice. Because it's it's a difficult decision to make because many of them have come to us wanting radioactive iodine treatment so that they don't have to medicate their cat. Um, so they can feel that it's a treatment failure if the cat is hypothyroid following treatment. Now, it is much easier to supplement with thyroid hormones than it is to give antithyroid drugs because you can use the liquid thyroid supplement. It's a very small volume of liquid. It doesn't have an unpleasant taste. It can be given with food. So it is actually very easy to supplement with thyroid hormones. Um, if So that's that's if the cat's been treated with radioactive iodine treatment. If it's been medically treated, um, certainly if the patient is unwell or azotemic, I would I would back off on the on the dose of antithyroid drugs that I'm giving. Um, interestingly, we've just been doing some work which is as yet unpublished, so I probably shouldn't talk about it, but um, where we've followed cats that have had surgical thyroidectomies and and what we've found, and these are sort of cats that we've treated in the distant past, and we've got samples that are stored in our freezers that we've been able to dig out and assay, and we've shown that the cats may be hypothyroid for a really long period, and then actually recover, sometimes after two years after surgery and having been hypothyroid all that time, and some of them actually don't only recover, but become hypothyroid again even after that length of time so if you if if we think that a lot of these cats might develop um some functional tissue with by whatever whatever means is there at, at, at some point in time would there would there be a, a rationale to say well we're yeah, is it is it worthwhile treating these or just the fact that if it's low and azotemic those are the ones that you're more happy with but otherwise maybe to come back in a few months depending on how their the clinical picture picture is yet I, I think that's a really good question and one that we don't currently know the answer to but it's one of the things that we're actively trying to trying to 
research because it's a very fine line between like the cat that's been treated for hypothyroidism typically gains weight and slows down and things and historically when owner said to me oh my cat's got fat and lazy I'd go yay treatments worked um without necessarily having recognized that sometimes that was because we'd gone too far um the other way and the cats had become overtly hypothyroid and hypothyroid cats don't lose their hair so it's not they don't show other manifestations of hypothyroidism um but if the cat has been really hypothyroid for a long time even even moving it to euthyroidism so clearly makes it gain weight and perhaps be less active than it than it was so deciding on the basis of the patient's clinical signs in that situation can be difficult to say okay is this reversal of the hypothyroid state or is this actually a move to avert hypothyroidism and when you were um, mentioned before about that quality of life because you've, you've looked into this as well haven't you with, with hypothyroid cats so, so is that something that uh, like you said, like people get excited that their cat has come back, but then do people get upset if their cat doesn't interact as much and sleeps like my cat does most of the time, <laughs> maybe on you? Or, but you know, I I think it varies. Some some clients are like, oh yeah, that's what it was like before, and some some owners feel like, oh now you've suddenly given me an old cat instead of the young the young cat. Um, so. Yes, I think the vast majority of clients are really happy with with how their cats are following radioactive iodine treatment and the fact that they don't have to to wrestle with them to pill them or that's which often sort of creates a sort of conflict in their in their relationship with with their cat. So I think even even when they're hypothyroid, most clients are really happy with the outcome. Um, and if we didn't tell them that there was a problem biochemically, I think most clients wouldn't wouldn't perceive that there was an issue. At the moment, we're trying to study this in a prospective manner. Previously, we tried to look at retrospective data, and one of the problems was that even though even though we encouraged the the cats that had had radioactive iodine treatment to go to their regular vets and to be um, to be checked up at three and six months, um, many of the owners didn't take the cats back to the vet because they felt that they were fixed. And if they did go back to the vet, the vet often looked at them, and even though we'd asked specifically to have T4 measured or to have these things they they weighed them they looked at them and they were like oh it's marvelous and then they sent them away without taking a blood sample so you know even though we were specifically trying trying to do that um so these are these are difficult questions to answer so is that is that one of the, the questions you're obviously like trying to answer? But what what other questions are you are you uh, are you trying to answer with these uh, with these cats? Or do you think the future holds? Well, one of the questions that I think everybody is asking, and and 
there, there's a lot of contention over is whether we can change doses of radioactive iodine that are given to mean that less cats develop hypothyroidism following treatment. And that's that's always going to be a little bit of a double-edged sword because invariably if you if you reduce the dose of radioactive iodine that you give at some point you will reduce it to the level at which you have fewer cats that you make hypothyroid but more cats that you are unsuccessful in resolving their hypothyroidism and although that's uncommon we do still have five percent of the cats that are treated with radioactive iodine that aren't euthyroid following following treatment those are usually cats that have t4s of greater than 250 pre-treatment less than 250 treatment success is is really very high but a lot of cats are at least transiently hypothyroid now it is suggested that actually you could make less cats hypothyroid by giving them lower doses and there there are some places in the states that actually have reportedly lower rates of hypothyroidism following treatment and my suspicion although I don't have direct evidence for this, is that actually they treat more cats with really quite mild hypothyroidism, whereas we treat a lot of cats because they've failed medical management or because they've had thyroidectomies and that's been unsuccessful. So we may be treating a relatively large number of cats that have quite a high burden of disease. And if the radioactive iodine that you give is being taken up by those abnormal cells, basically you're going to have more iodine uptake, you're going to have more abnormal tissue, and any normal tissue that you do have is more likely to get caught in the crossfire, so to speak, and destroyed. So I think differences in what people are reporting may depend a little bit on how severe the hypothyroidism is to begin with and if you're treating cats with really quite mild hypothyroidism where you've just got islands of abnormal tissue but a lot of relatively normal tissue you may be less likely to cause hypothyroidism. Do you think we'll be able to better treat uh, these uh, these cats with hypothyroidism with radioactive iodine if we do technetium scans on all of them or do you think that or is there another way that we, rather than the the value of T4, that we can say the dose that is required if we're going to try and tailor the therapy to the patient, which is, I think, kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, I mean, there are there are there are some people who um, who do make their dose determinations on the basis of technetium uptake. I mean, if you were going to really fine tune it, you should you should use iodine uptake rather than technetium to make that um, dose determination it's but to to really answer that question what you would have to do is to have a center where they had a uniform uh, well they had the population of cats that they see in that clinic and to 
randomise them, so half of them to be dosed on the basis of their technetium scan and half of them to be dosed as we do it on the basis of both T4 and clinical clinical picture and to show that the technetium the technetium scan resulted in a better outcome. So we might be able to find the results of that when we retire or uh, <laughs> or maybe the generation. I, th- I think really. I think people are working on it, but the problem is in general, you have some clinics which do technetium scans and some clinics which don't. And what I'm trying to say is that actually those clinics probably see slightly different cohorts and so it may be difficult to make direct comparison. And, as I've already alluded to, it's quite difficult to get the clients to bring the cats back um, for follow-up, even if you get them to pay for it up front. Uh, because um, because they feel that the patients are... Well, and the patients are clinically better, so they don't see the need for follow-up. So yeah. perhaps we're agonising unnecessarily, and we should just say, actually, you know what? Patients clinically fine. Maybe uh, that, that's a maybe that's a good place to, to leave it. But unless unless I suppose that in the future we could uh, get a a, a a oral swab which we could measure T four. In which case, then they could just post that back to us, or uh, <laughs> we can have another way of, uh, of of measuring the thyroid level rather than a rather than a blood test, which might uh, um, improve uh, improve compliance. Um, is, is there anything else you particularly like to, to think that we haven't uh, covered in this uh, in, in this brief chat about hypothyroidism and uh, and renal disease? Uh, I think we've touched on the main the uh, the main the main points. I think I think the the main thing to to realise is actually that um, cats that we treat for hypothyroidism that develop mild azotemia actually do really clinically very well and that we shouldn't undertreat them with the idea of trying to make the numbers better above all we have to keep thinking about what's the patient doing and if the patient is clinically well then that's a pretty good end point couldn't say it better myself so many thanks Hattie for your time today um, and uh, and thank you for for listening, um, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. In which case you won't have to uh, miss an episode, and they can just go automatically to your uh, um, smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Please uh, don't forget to try and leave us a, a review if you go to the Apple Podcast Store. Five stars would be great. Other stars are available, but you can leave those for, for another podcast you're reviewing. Um, if you have any comments or suggestions of this podcast, please get in touch. You So you can either email me at dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or you can tweet me at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.